I was still wearing Betsy's white blouse and dirndl skirt. They drooped a bit now, as I hadn't washed them in my three weeks at home. The sweaty cotton gave off a sour but friendly smell. I hadn't washed my hair for three weeks either. I hadn't slept for seven nights. My mother told me I must have slept. It was impossible not to sleep in all that time. But if I slept, it was with my eyes wide open, for I had followed the green, luminous course of the second hand and the minute hand and the hour hand of the bedside clock through their circles and semicircles every night for seven nights without missing a second or a minute or an hour. The reason I hadn't washed my clothes or my hair was because it seemed so silly. I saw the days of the year stretching ahead like a series of bright white boxes and separating one box from another with sleep like a black shade. Only for me, the long perspective of shades that set off one box from the next had suddenly snapped up and I could see day after day after day glaring ahead of me like a white, broad, infinitely desolate avenue. It seemed silly to wash one day when I would only have to wash again the next. It made me tired just to think of it. I wanted to do everything once and for all and be through with it. Welcome to the Different Functional Podcast. I'm Ivy, the younger sister, and today we are talking about depression. The excerpt that I just read from Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar is connected to my fact of the day because I have dealt with depression since I was at least 13. And when I read this book for the first time, I thought, I'm actually not alone. Somebody else has felt this before too. And I am Autumn, the older sister, and I have also struggled with depression, and I'm actually currently struggling with some depression right now. And I, I totally relate to what you're saying, Ivy, to have felt something inside of you and then see that outside of you. I know for me, that was when I heard of Ryan Adams, and he actually does a song called September, and it's just so sad and so overwhelming. And there was another one I've recently heard by, I think his name is Anson Sebra, called Broken. And again, it's just so sad. You just fall into it. And that's actually my fact of the day is when I start to get depressed, one of my biggest struggles is not just falling into it because it's almost addictive for me. I, I want to be depressed. Like when it comes along, I want to fall into it. I want to lay down with it. I want to give up with it. I want that, that beautiful, sweet ease of just not anymore. I want to lay down with it. And that's not even about suicidality or death or anything like that. It's just the idea of giving up. And it's so compelling to me. It's so just addictive. 
Yeah. And, you know, I would love to hear from some of our listeners about whether they experience that feeling too, because I know I definitely have when I've struggled with depression, that part of me that just wants to give into it completely to the point where when I would go through a lengthy depressive episode, I actually used to fantasize about being institutionalized, being sent away to a mental hospital, because when you are depressed, everything is so exhausting that you just don't want to have to think about anything. You don't want to have to do anything. And it is so tempting to give into the depression because if you give in, then you don't have to worry about anything anymore. You don't have any responsibilities. Like that was the most seductive thing about the idea of being institutionalized is I'm no longer even responsible for myself, much less anybody else. I don't have to go to work. I don't have to worry about paying rent. I don't have to take care of anybody. I don't have to bathe every day. I don't have to do anything. So I'm really curious. I would love to hear from our listeners if any of you have experienced that addictive quality of depression too, where the idea of giving in and just letting yourself sink into it is deeply seductive. And that was the exact word I was thinking. Like when you said it, I was like, yes, seductive, compelling, um, desirous. It's so crazy, but even though you don't want to feel that way, even though it feels shitty and horrible and bad and everything hurts, there's almost this part of you that just desires it. It's so crazy. And so before we really get too deep into this, let's let's twist our focus here and really talk about what depression is. So that way we, you know, we have a concept of what are we talking about today. And we always start whenever there's anything diagnosable with the diagnosis Bible in the US, which is the DSM-5. And so let's look at some of the criteria they have for depression in there. Basically what they do, like anything, they have a whole bunch of symptoms and then they give you some criteria on how many of these symptoms and how long. And for depression, it's at least five or more of the following symptoms and for two weeks time. First of all, depressed mood. Okay, this is either subjectively feeling sad, empty, or hopeless, or maybe observed depressed moods, such as tearfulness, flat affect, things along those lines. Next symptoms, diminished interest, or increase or decrease of appetite is another one of those. Insomnia or hypersomnia, basically you can't sleep at all or you're sleeping all the time. Psychomotor agitation or retardation, and this basically means you're just going around anxious, fidgety, constantly going, going, going. That's the psychomotor agitation, psychomotor retardation, where you just can't move at all. You feel lethargic. You maybe even have some catatonia where you're just staring off into space for hours. Next symptoms, fatigue or loss of energy. Then feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt. There's also the diminished ability to think or concentrate, indecisiveness. And then the last symptom, recurrent thoughts of death, uh, whether this is suicidal ideation without a specific plan or actual suicide attempts or plans for committing suicide. And when it comes to depression, there's, of course, you know, major depressive disorder, which can be diagnosed, but depressed mood or depressive episodes, theum and schizophrenia, bipolar, the depressive disorders, of course, they're also frequently associated with withdrawal, dissociative disorders, some of your personality disorders, adjustment disorders. And there's a lot, a lot of comorbidity, which means if you have one of these other disorders, you're likely to also have this. And so depression is one of those that likes to partner up a lot. So you see it a lot with PTSD. You see it a lot with autism. You see it a lot with ADHD. It, it comes in a lot of areas. 
But the thing is, we're not just talking about diagnosable depression because that is the extreme. But a lot of us that are different functional, that keyword being functional, we're focusing with something that may not be diagnosable because depression is a spectrum. And maybe you have been diagnosed with it before and it's like something that kind of comes and goes. I know for me, depression is not something that is constant, but I have had chronic episodes of depression and I've had debilitating depression, but most of the time I have what I would consider to be more functional depression. You know, they talk about functional alcoholics. I feel like that to some degree is my relationship with depression. I am a functional depressive. And one of the things we're going to talk about too, is that there's a difference between emotion and depression. Emotion is more of a transient state, usually in reaction to a specific event. Whereas depression, it can go hand in hand with emotion, but depression is often something that is not always in direct reaction to a specific trigger or factor or set of circumstances. If you can have all of these amazing things, your relationships are great, you're successful at work, there should be no reason for you to feel sad, but yet you still feel depressed. You feel empty, listless, melancholic, like all of those sorts of things. So depression is not just the feeling of being sad. Can it go hand in hand with that? Yes. And it can go hand in hand with things like grief where, yeah, that can be an acute emotional response, but that can also be something that goes on for a long period of time. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're somebody who will suffer with chronic depression over the course of your life. So there is a difference there. We wanted to point that out. Yeah. And I really think that's, I think the length of it, and I guess almost like the depth or breadth of it is really what separates depression from sadness or depression from another emotion. Because a lot of times when you think of an emotion is like Ivy said, it's something transient. It comes, it goes, and other emotions can come in. And sometimes depressive states can be triggered by something outside of you. Like currently I would say my depressive state is that I was recently laid off from work in date not yet known, but it's continuing to go on. So now even though happy things are happening, I don't feel that. Now it's ongoing and it's staying and it has that power. It's, it's a marathon. You know, an emotion is very much a sprint, but depression becomes part of your life. And so now that we've kind of looked at what depression is and especially how it's separate from you know emotion itself that it is this own entity that kind of comes in and sits in your chest I, I feel like one of the things they don't talk a lot about is how how it can be affected by so many societal factors the dsm of course a lot of criticisms about whether or not it's biased for gender or race in some ways it is i feel like depression not only is a spectrum in like how deep you feel it and i kind of want to touch base with some of that that there's different societal factors that impact how you express it and what it looks like for you and even how you feel it and experience within yourself i know even culture you know i i've read studies and stuff about how ethnicity and your race and your nationality you know the country you're brought up in these all affect how you're able to express depression or if you're able to express it at all. Because some countries are very much 
restrictive and if you're allowed to express emotion, if you're allowed to express mental health needs. And when it is that restrictive, it's not like restricting it all of a sudden doesn't mean you have depression. A lot of times it ends up coming out somatically. It comes out in your body. And this can also happen with various religions. Some religions are very much about open expression of emotion. You know, you talk about some of the religions and cultures that want you to express grief and you see people literally ripping their hair out, ripping shirts, and you have this very open, accepted way to express it. And then you have others that are very prim and proper and we don't talk about this outside the world. I feel there's a very big, in, in where I'm at, the rural mentality, this cowboy mentality is very destructive. It it's, it's gender equal in that both men and women are supposed to just get back on the horse when it kicks you in the head. But it definitely hits men a lot more, too, is that idea that you're not allowed to be depressed, that depression is a weakness. And I think I've seen that also in the military. Primarily, almost all of the people that I've dated have either been in the military actively, are former military and or our law enforcement officers and all of those professions are things where your ability to express emotion at all is very much restricted. And it's always been interesting to me how many of those men that I've dated that are in those professions or have been in those professions don't even recognize always that they are depressed because it's been so restrictive for them that not only do they not feel free to express their depression, they also don't even always have awareness that they are experiencing depression because they've had to restrict their emotions so much. And there is also a note that I wanted to make going to the, the religious thing as well that I think almost kind of ties in here where some religions, it is considered a sign of weakness to have anything going on with you in terms of mental health. So it's not just prim and proper, we don't talk about it, but it is like with some of those professions, there is something wrong with you and weak about you. You don't have enough faith or you don't have enough strength as a person, you don't have enough resolve or character. So I think that's, that's a big thing cultural thing and we're talking about culture we're not just talking about ethnic background and geography we are talking about the culture that you find yourself in in your day-to-day -day life and that ends up causing a lot of the stigma around depression people cause themselves to cut themselves off so much from other people when they are depressed and maybe even cut themselves off from their awareness of their emotions and of their depression because it is a sign of weakness that's what we're told if you are depressed, there's something wrong with you. There's something weak about you. You need to be stronger. You need to cut yourself off from this. You need to have more faith in God, whatever. It's something that you are doing wrong. I think that that's almost even, well, I wouldn't say almost, it is even officialized in certain professions. My first husband was in the military. He said that certain security clearances weren't available if you had a diagnosed mental disorder, whether that was bipolar or depression. And I've heard the same thing of professional pilots. If you get that mental health diagnosis, that will end your career. You're no longer allowed to have your license with those things. And I'm not sure if that's accurate. I've not done the research, but I wouldn't be surprised because there is a lot of concern, I guess, about the suicidality and that you could hurt others, etc., but when you do that to somebody, you are definitely saying something about you is wrong. You have failed. You are not allowed to progress in your chosen career, in your chosen profession, because you failed. And that's definitely going to impact 
not only if you express the depression at all or if you hide it, but like Ivy said, if you're even willing to acknowledge it within yourself. And I think part of it too, though, is we see depression and we often think we often think sadness, you know, it's just, oh, you're kind of sad, you're kind of lethargic. But really there's a wide variety of expression. And we're going to touch about on this a lot in today's podcast, how gender definitely influences how you express depression. You know, because again, that is part of those culture, those cultural messages. Are you allowed to be sad? And you see that a lot with with males. They tend to have more irritability. They tend to have more anger. They tend to have more outward expression because that's what they're allowed to have. Like I said, this depression isn't going to go away because you restrict it. It's a physiological reality. It's a neurobiological reality. You can't just wish it away, pretend it away, pray it away. It's something that is there. Just like if you had cancer or if you had heart disease or if you had an appendix that exploded, it's all physical realities and that's what depression is. And if you don't give it expression, if you don't allow it out in behaviors, it's going to find a way out somewhere. And so if you're not allowing yourself to be apathetic or lethargic, it's going to find a way out in anger or irritability or hyper-competitiveness. And I think that speaks also towards age. There's actually a piece in the DSM about teenagers and children who may have irritable mood and not depressed mood. And I feel that speaks to the gender as well. Irritability versus depression. What does that even look like and how do you experience it? Yeah. And I think another important thing to note with age is that a lot of things that most of us would see in a teenager as far as behaviors and think, oh, that's just typical teenage angst. That's just because they have hormones raging through their body. It just because this is just something that teenagers go through. We all go through it. They'll get over it. It's a phase. It'll be fine. And for some teenagers, maybe that's true. And they are just going through those developmental phases, but there's a lot of mental health things that start to manifest in people's teens and early twenties. So that can be another thing that can be a complicating factor when it comes to those societal expressions and societal perceptions around depression. What we might think of in a child or a teenager or somebody in their early 20s is just being part of that, you know, developmental, they're growing up kind of angsty thing that could actually be the beginnings of clinical depression or the onset of some sort of mental health thing, because that's such a common age right there in those teen years for mental health issues to start manifesting. Definitely one of those things where if you start noticing a lot of irritability and acting out and, and um, you know maybe sleeping too much or changes in dietary habits, like those are things to be aware of as a parent, to at least keep an eye on because yeah, maybe they're just experiencing some typical teenage angst, but they could be starting to manifest in signs of some mental health issues, depression being one of them. And that needs to be treated very differently. Yeah, And I think part of that is just perception too, when it comes to kids, especially is, you know, as an adult, when you're depressed, you don't want to go to work and you don't want to get out of bed. But as an adult, you could call in sick to work. But if you do those things as a child, you tell your parent, I don't want to go to school. I don't want to get out of bed. It almost looks as opposition. Like you said, that teenage angst or vie for control. But it's really the exact same symptom. I don't want to go to school. I don't want to go to work. I don't want to go hang out with my friends. I don't want to get out of bed. 
It's very same, but because that child does not have the power an adult does to rule their life, they then have to express that to the parent or through the parent and vie for that control to be able to stay in bed, to be able to stay away from school. And so it becomes and looks like opposition or defiance or irritability, when in reality, it's the exact same symptom that the adult is expressing. It's just the adult has the power to express it. So it's that perception piece. And I think we can also tie that back talking about large society and culture, but also even just into your own family, how you're allowed to express things, how you're allowed to deviate from the norms. You know, are you allowed deviation? Are you allowed to express displeasure? Are you allowed to express the fact that you feel like crap and don't want to go to school? Or is that going to be perceived as you just trying to manipulate your way out of things? Or is it going to be perceived as we don't talk about that? You know, we we just do through, we go through. What are those family messages you're getting? How your family is teaching you, especially is going to be very vital into how you experience depression and how that is acted out in your life and the behaviors that you see with that. Yeah, I think also along those family notes, when you come from a really dysfunctional family, you get a very, usually anyway, you get a very isolated view of the world. And so in a sense, your family is your world. And that is your culture, it is your society. And that may really be the only exposure you have to other people. And that can really impact what stigmas you apply to mental health stuff, it can impact what you learn by example, and also what you're told is or is not allowed. I know just as a quick personal example for Autumn and I, and we've talked about this before, is that our parents, their emotions were so much bigger than we were. And so because they were expressing in very extreme ways on a regular basis, what they were feeling, and, and especially our mom with depression, being so completely incapacitated by it, that taught me at least a couple of things. And that was that depression is completely incapacitating. So it took me a while to realize when I was depressed, because all I had seen were those extremes. But another reason why it took me a while to feel figure out that I was depressed was because I did not feel as a child that I was allowed to have any sort of emotion, I was not allowed to feel or express any sort of emotion at all. Because my parents got to and theirs was so much bigger that there was no space in the household for us kids to have any sort of emotion or any expression of that emotion. So family can have a variety of different influences on how you express mental health things of your own or how much awareness you even have of mental health issues that you might be struggling with. Yeah. And just the, like you said, even the ability to see it as a deviation and sometimes even in functional, healthy, normative, however you want to term that families, if depression kicks in at a young age, which it can, because again, there's a physiological thing. It may be that you do have a healthy, loving, supportive family, but you can still be depressed. Your brain chemistry can still be whacked up to the point you get depression. And if you experience this from a young enough age and your family doesn't have the education or the awareness, just be seen as, well, that's just how you are. You know, you're just a pessimist. You're always looking on the downside. But you could have been depressed since you were six, seven, eight years old, and you just think, oh, well, that's how I am. Or maybe if you do come from a dysfunctional family like ours, for me, it was, yes, depression is totally incapacitating. But that lighter level stuff, I just thought that's what everybody had. I didn't know they got enjoyment out of life or wanted to live 
or fought to breathe every day because they were so exhausted. I didn't know that until like my mid twenties. And I was just like, you know, explaining typical things. And they're like, no, not everybody has suicide plans like that. That's not a normative thing. And I'm like, sure it is. But it, it really does. Culture affects, like I said, not only how you, how you're allowed to express it, but also just even if you recognize that it is depression at all. Yeah, I definitely got some of that uh, that pushback too on things because I just thought like, life is a battlefield. It's all a struggle for survival. And I didn't think of there being like the possibility that things could actually be happy. I thought that was just stuff that like happened in stories, happy endings and fairy tales. I thought that's what it was. I, it took me a while to realize that no, life is not like that for everybody and not the... It, not for everybody is it a battle a battlefield inside their head because I still get caught in that acting like everything has to be a battlefield. Not even like a soldier mentality, but uh, apparently I am when it comes to my own mental health. Okay, <laughs> we are going to now start talking about what does depression look like. Well, the reason we do want to talk about that is because people don't know whether you come from that normative or that dysfunctional background. I really think it's important to talk about what it looks like because we think we have this idea, the stereotype comes stereotyped concept, and it's not accurate. This is not just for these are things that we're going to talk about that it would be good to kind of look for in yourself as well. But this is also going to be helpful information for those of you who maybe don't struggle with mental health issues yourself, but you have somebody in your life who might be going through some things that might seem confusing to you because you, you don't have experience with depression yourself. So we're going to start with daily functioning. So these are the external signs that other people are kind of likely to notice just in terms of how you function with depression. And we're going to kind of break this down a little bit between more feminine or masculine displays of depression. And Autumn and I are not equipped to talk about other cultures really in terms of ethnic background and different places in the world. We don't have enough understanding of that to really speak to that. So we're going to kind of focus more on like westernized culture. And the reason why we're breaking this down between more feminine and masculine expressions is because in this culture, in the West, in the US, it does tend to be very different manifestations for women expressing depression versus men expressing depression or feminine or masculine, those, those stereotypes. So when a lot of people think of depression, and this has definitely changed a lot just over the last couple of decades, but depression really used to be thought of as being like a woman's disease that only women got depressed. Because for a long time, there was this idea that depression was this very specific set of, uh, expression. And that would be, you know, melancholia or hysteria, being really overly emotional or being completely catatonic, just these very extremes, this anxiety, the being incapacitated, not getting out of bed, kind of that, you know, damsel in distress sort of thing, completely out of control of your life and completely incapacitated. And granted, that is not how everybody with depression experiences it. And that's not how all women experience it. But for a long time, depression was viewed that way societally, that that's how it expressed. 
and that it only expressed in women. But now we are seeing things in a very different way as the conversation around mental health opens up and the conversation around depression opens up and we're starting to recognize that different people will manifest mental health things in different ways. There started to be patterns recognized that in men, depression often presented differently. And one of the ways it does that is men tended to express depression more through anger or aggression. They tended to express it more by instead of being incapacitated and in being like a workaholic, pushing themselves harder to meet socially, ex societally expected roles. And part of that is because the way that, that we've historically in the West raised boys is that your value is based on what you accomplish, on what you do on how successful you are. And so a lot of men, when they start experiencing depression or more masculine people, when they start experiencing depression, they tend to push harder into those expectations because they're seeking to be validated. They're seeking to be acknowledged for their worth. So it's not always that a person experiencing depression is so incapacitated that they can't get out of bed. It's not always being catatonic. It's not always sadness that it manifests as. Sometimes it does express as anger. Sometimes it does express as addictions and being a workaholic and being hyper successful or hyper productive, if you want to call it that. And that tends to be something that has been kind of these patterns have, that have been noticed as more feminine representations versus masculine representations. And that's, some of that is social misnomers, these stereotypes that we have about what it means to be feminine and what it means to be masculine. And some of it actually is biologically how we're wired up differently as males or females. That expression of, of depression can vary greatly between men and women. Depression does not always look the same. No, and I think also, especially when you're talking gender and sex, you have both the internal expression of that and the external expectation of that. And both of those are going to affect, you know, whether you tend more towards the anxiety and the catatonia and the incapacitation or whether you go more towards that overdrive and the anger. So you have you know, what do you personally identify as? Do you feel you're more male? Do you feel you're more female? Do you feel you're more non-binary? Whatever you are on that spectrum is going to affect how you explain, you know, well, how do I want to be seen as society? Do I want to be seen as more masculine or more feminine? And so you're going to gravitate more towards those external behaviors, because like I said, this has to come out somewhere that are approved of. But then it's also going to be the society looking in on what they assume your gender is or should be, because I feel anger is a really great example for this. And I feel this also plays into culture and race specifically. And again, Ivy and I can't speak to this. I've just heard little bits here and there. But the idea of anger is very not allowed for a lot of people. So if a female is angry, she can be considered a bitch and difficult to work with. And it's a lot of negative persona. But if a man is considered, if he's acting out angrily, that's to be expected. He's masculine. It's rewarded. And again, 
I can't speak to this greatly, but I do want to bring it up because I think it's important that race factor, black women specifically, when they get angry, it's not only frowned on because they're women, but it's frowned on because they are black. And so society perceives them as dangerous. And so if they act out with their depression as irritability or anger, that's going to get a lot of blowback. And so when you are depressed, you're exhausted already. And so, like I said, this is going to leak out somewhere. And if you leak out in something that's going to get you a lot of pushback from society, it's going to make you that much more exhausted. So you're going to find that path of least resistance. And so if society says, well, you're allowed to cry, then you're going to cry. And if society says, well, you're allowed to scream and throw things, then you're probably going to be wanting to more scream and throw things because you don't want that pushback and you do still need to express this. Yeah, and we all, whether we want to or not, we all respond to those societal pressures. And part of the reason why women or feminine have been more likely to be expressive of their emotions is because in society, at least American culture, women are allowed to. And that can come from a not so great place of double standards and, and whatnot of treating women as though they're weak. So of course you would be emotional because you can't control yourself. You're just a woman. Is that bullshit? Yes. But when it comes to things like depression and sadness and those sorts of things, women have been more allowed to express those things societally because it's expected that women are weaker and sadness is, is a sign of weakness. Again, it's bullshit, but society does influence those perspectives and we all feel those social pressures. Men are not allowed by society to feel sadness. They're not allowed to cry. They're not allowed to feel anything or express anything other than this specific subset of emotions. And one of the few things, one of the few emotions men are allowed to express is anger because that comes across as being powerful and aggressive and dominant and women are supposed to be passive so we're we're allowed to feel sadness because we're meant to be passive it, again it's all stupid <laughs> it's bullshit but we have all been subjected to that we've all been raised in that and immersed in that and it's been wired into us that that is how things are at least in western culture so yeah, you can fight back against that. And there's nothing wrong with that. But like Autumn said, that can be incredibly exhausting to fight back against those expectations that society has when you are already so tired as it is. And if you are going to express those things emotionally that you're not really allowed to because of your gender, you're more likely to express those things on your own, completely withdrawing from other people. And that ties in directly to daily functioning, too, because what I would call functional expression, what are you allowed or disallowed as your race or as your gender to let go in your life? You know, so if you have functional depression and we're not talking the incapacitating where you just literally cannot get out of bed, but when you have functional walking depression, what are you allowed to skimp on? So as a man, especially if you're in a relationship or a culture which sees you as the breadwinner and maybe you are potentially the only income for the family, you can't let your career slide because you have to support people. But because you have even more limited resources because of that depression, you're going to let other things slide. Well, what can you let slide? Well, your connection to your wife, your connection to your children, because that's less important. It's less vital to be able to function. You're basically acting on triage now. What do I need to do? What do I absolutely need to have to do 
in order to get through my day, in order to continue living, in order to keep pushing forward. And for men, that may mean that you can let your family go, or it can mean you can be rude to your friends, or it can mean a lot of things, but it may not mean that you can give up on your career. And so that's where that daily functioning piece can come in that's really affected by you know, not only your gender, but your race and your culture and other things is you don't have enough resources to do anything, everything you need to do anymore, because that's what depression does. It really robs you of those resources and it robs you of that energy. Where can you start skimping? Where can that daily functioning start to slide? And whether you're male, female, Catholic, Jewish, whatever it happens to be, there are some things that are pretty much across the board that you can just start skimping on if possible. And sometimes that's things like hygiene. And again, like I said, sometimes you've been depressed since you're eight. And so you're not going to notice that that difference. It's just going to always have been this way. But if somebody's just being depressed for the first time or you feel them sliding into, you are seeing a difference from the norm. So you're seeing somebody that typically does X, Y, and Z, and now they're only doing Z and they're not doing X at all and they're barely doing Y. But that daily functioning definitely starts to get affected because you just don't have enough resources to do it all. And so something has to give. We're going to move into the more mental or cognitive impact that we see from depression. So Autumn and I were just talking about this right before we started recording is how weird and kind of trippy it is that when you feel depressed, it really messes with your perception of time. And I know that I've read a, a couple of studies that they've done that depression actually it really significantly impacts your short-term memory there's something about the nature of depression that impacts us so deeply that we're kind of going through life in a haze kind of just foggy you're just barely maintaining and so you lose time like there are there are weeks or maybe even months of my life in my early 20s that I can't really account for because during that time I was so depressed and that's all I know about that period of time. I just remember being depressed, but I don't really remember much from my life at that time. Time just goes by in this weird blur where it both drags on and disappears in an instant simultaneously. And it's not even like it speeds up and slows down, but it's like it's doing both at once. And like I said, I'm struggling with a little bit of depression right now. And I really notice this in the evenings, you know, when I have my downtime and I feel like, oh, I just I want to go to bed because I'm so done with the day. But then all of a sudden it's 3 a.m. And I'm like, shit. And this is not something I do because I am super big on sleep and I love sleep. I, I felt like time was dragging and I could never get to bed, but then all of a sudden it's 3 a.m. and I don't know what I did with the last five or six hours. It's just all blurry and unfocused. And beyond time and memory to just even ability to think, to focus on anything. Like today when we started the show, I'm a talker and I can usually just pull shit out of my ass, do whatever I need to do. But I was just trying to do my simple fact of the day when we started and I, I will edit this out so you won't have heard it. But I think it took me four, five, six times before I could finally get together my words to start this because my mind doesn't even want to do that. Like recalling words or focusing through with something. And this even goes to basic tasks for me, being able to do things. Yeah, I've brought up the peanut butter and jelly analogy before, I think, in our reduced functioning episodes. 
But even that, like I'll go to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and I may actually make one of these four days every week for my boyfriend to go to work. And being who I am, there is an efficient routine for this. You grab the peanut butter, you grab the bread, you grab the jelly, and then you have this whole routine. And I can't do that right now. I can't even do this routine that I've been doing for almost a year because my mind just, it can't get these pieces and I'm losing stuff. And even to the point, I'm not even recognizing it and I can't focus to make decisions because for me, especially decisions are a very logical thing. I can't do that because I don't know. And I just feel it's impossible to make decisions. And I feel like there's something else I want to say about making decisions, like almost like the apatheticness of it. But I throw this at Ivy and see if she'll pick up the slack. Okay, well, I will catch what you threw at me. And I, I can relate to that feeling of like apathy. You're already exhausted. You're already tired. And you're having a hard time focusing. You're going through life in a blur. Time is all warped. And when it comes to making decisions, it's it's like the excerpt that I was reading out of the bell jar where she's talking about like, I didn't see the point in washing my clothes or washing my hair because I'm just going to have to do it again tomorrow. And that seems so pointless. And I think that's part of the difficulty that comes with making decisions when you're feeling depressed is it's like, why? What is the point? Why am I even trying? Like, this is this is dumb. Why bother eating today? I'm just going to have to eat again tomorrow and I'm too tired to chew. Even the simplest things become so much more complicated by the sheer exhaustion you feel. And this, I'm gonna say it's like a dissociative. And I I tend to have issues with dissociation in general, and I'd never really applied it to depression in, a, in, a, in that sense. But before we started recording, I started thinking about it in that sense. It's like, there is something about the nature of depression that is very dissociative in that you become disconnected from everything. You're disconnected from other people. You're disconnected from your environment. In a lot of ways, you're disconnected from yourself. You're disconnected from time. You are disconnected from everything. And even though you're present, you're there, you're walking around through the world, it feels at the same time like you're not there. I know now at this point in my life because i'm so familiar with depression and i know how to recognize when it's coming on and i I know how to deal with it and everything and it's it's interesting because i can almost see my depression objectively in the sense that when i'm having a day where i feel really depressed and i especially notice this on sunny days i'll be driving to work and it's a beautiful day and the sun is shining and it's warm and i should be feeling great but instead i feel nothing And I can make that whole drive to work and not remember a single moment of it. But I'm acutely aware that the sun is shining and I should be feeling something good about that. But I can't manage anything. And I can't remember really anything. And I'm just moving through the day on autopilot. And I think a lot of times with those those things where you fail to put the peanut butter and jelly in your sandwich and it's just two pieces of bread. It's because you are on autopilot. You're operating at the minimum capacity necessary to get through the day. And that's not even something you are doing consciously. It is something that just kicks in when you are dealing with depression. You just automatically start operating on autopilot and can you do more than that? Can you focus with more intention and act more consciously? Maybe, but it takes such a tremendous amount of effort 
that it doesn't really even feel worth it to try unless it's something that is absolutely necessary to get done. And even then you're going to do a half-assed job of it, whether you want to or not, most of the time. That I think I'm going to skip ahead a little and jump right into that emotional piece of that. Well, nothing. And a lot of times when we think of depression, like we said in the beginning, we think of depression as being sad, as being cryful. And there have been times where I have been, where I'll just start crying for no reason throughout the day, like literally no reason. I'm just sitting here typing up a report and I start crying. But a lot of times for me, depression isn't a very emotional negative attitude. Like I assume things aren't going to work out or I assume I'm going to end up homeless, but I can't even build up the the wherewithal to be anxious about it sometimes. Like you said, it's apathy. It's the numbness. And to me, that's usually the biggest indicator that I'm slipping into depression. It isn't that I'm sad or irritable. It's that I am nothing. I am an extremely emotional person. I'm super happy. I'm super sad. I'm super angry. I am on a constant roller coaster throughout the day. And it just takes over as this flat line of nothing. And I hate it because it's like I'm experiencing the world through layers and layers of gloves and nothing can touch me at all. And part of me, like I said at the beginning, is seductive because I just don't want to be touched and I want to give up. And part of it is so lonely because even if I want on some level to connect with someone I love, to connect with my boyfriend, or even to connect with my dogs who demand so little from me and who I can usually connect to so easily, I just stare at them because it's it's that dampened down inside of me, those feelings. Yeah. And I think another thing to note here is that these things that we're, we're talking about here when it comes to emotional expression... This is not something that people on the outside will necessarily recognize in another person. A lot of people with depression will describe that feeling of numbness, but that may not be what they show externally. And that may be for a couple of reasons. One of those reasons is because we do still have to function. And if you are at an event where you were expected to be happy and play the hostess, or to be the life of the party, because that is typically your role, you will do your best to do that. And one of the, the other things that can influence that expression of emotion is that you can, even though you feel numb inside, there is a part of you that is trying to feel something. It can be very hard sometimes to identify when somebody that you care about is experiencing depression, a lot of the people that I'm really close to that struggle with depression, when they're depressed, they still feel a pressure to be that life of the party or to be that giving, caring person. And so they will often mask their depression because they are still trying to fill that role for the people around them. And then they go home and they are a completely different person because they still know that they have to function. So they are, and it can be difficult to recognize that from the outside. So be aware of that too. Just because somebody seems outwardly very happy does not necessarily mean that they are not struggling with depression. Or just because somebody seems very aggressive and angry does not mean that that is coming from a space of genuine aggression and anger. It can be coming from a space of depression. It's just manifesting outwardly as that emotion. Emotional awareness and emotional regulation take effort. 
they really do. I mean, I've been trying to, I've been practicing emotional regulation and emotional awareness for, well, since I was 13 and I came a long time because I'm 40. But when I start getting depressed, there is effort that I just can't put into it. It's just like that peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I've been making those for years and I mess that up. And so when it comes to that emotional regulation and that emotional awareness, that is also something that takes effort and we lose that. And so sometimes a person may say they don't feel anything or they feel fine or they feel happy, but that's not what they're showing. Like Ivy said, there can be that disconnect and sometimes just an honest disconnect they don't know. I've had times where I feel apathetic and I realize my cheeks are wet because I'm crying. And that's like the cutoff. I am so cut off from my emotions and so cut off from everything. And I know that seems like a cliche that you see in books and movies, but it, it can be a reality. And so sometimes people may think that they're totally fine and they're not. And it's that same way when something does get triggered, when you kickstart and kickstart and kickstart and kickstart the engine and it finally revs up. Well, there's no oil in there to do anything. And so it catches fire. And so you do see some of those extreme emotions. And like I said, you know, again, it's that split. So when we do see those extreme emotions, maybe it's increased emotionality in females, you know, histrionics, like we like to think of it. There's crying, there's guilt, there's martyrdom, there's shame. Or maybe for the men, it's the anger or the disconnection or arrogance or narcissism because that's what they're allowed. But that triggered emotion comes out greater because you don't have the wherewithal to regulate your emotion. Yeah. And I think too, an important thing to note with depression is like, yeah, numbness is very much a typical thing that people with depression feel, but it is also very common for people with depression to feel guilty about being depressed, to feel like they are being a burden to other people. Uh, it's common to feel shame when you are depressed because you do feel as though you are broken um, partially because society tells you that, but also because you know you're not functioning at, at optimal capacity. So some of those things, some of those emotions go hand in hand with depression and can exacerbate and complicate it as well. I find that it's pretty rare that when I'm listening to somebody or talking to somebody about depression, that they express or describe having felt guilty about it, having felt shame about it, being resentful of other people for their happiness or because they're, those people are expecting something from them. But those are very common things to feel with depression and they're natural things to feel with depression as well. We put a lot of qualifying labels on emotions as being good or bad, but those feelings are just what they are. And the more that we stigmatize those feelings and the more that we label those things as bad, the worse it makes it too, because you already don't have that much energy with depression. And then you're down on yourself and you're feeling guilty for being depressed. You're feeling guilty because you think you're a burden. You're being, you're feeling ashamed of yourself for not being able to just snap out of it. You're feeling resentful of other people and that makes you feel even more guilty. And then you get down on yourself for that. And that makes you even more depressed and more exhausted. So that's another thing that I just wanted to mention that is often a silent battle that happens with people who are experiencing depression or all of those complicating emotions that get tied into it that can get you stuck in that vicious, sneaky hate spiral. Do you feel an increase in guilt and shame over everything, over past things, over current things? That peanut butter and jelly sandwich, if I send that to work with no peanut butter and jelly, I'm going to be obsessed with that for a day, two days, a week that I failed Jake, that I wasn't a good partner. There's going to be a lot of guilt with that. And I think that's something we didn't touch on, but I'll, I'll skip back a little with that cognition. 
you get very negative focused in your thoughts. So if you do look back or you do remember or you do see things right now, it's all of the negative stuff. You know, so your family and they're like, oh, but you have a family that loves you. And when that gets brought up to you, you're like, that I failed repeatedly. You have all this this negative Rolodex. You just see all these negative thoughts, all these negative memories. And even right now in the day-to-day, you see all the negative things. Well, that needs to be cleaned and the water heater's giving out and there's mold in the bathtub. You're not able to see the positive and you're not really able to feel the positive either. And so that guilt really is about so much of it. It's not just the depression, but it becomes about everything that you just have guilt for everything. Even if it's not your fault, you start feeling bad about it. Yeah. There's one other thing that I want to note before we move on to the the next part of things. When we're talking about the cognitive and emotional impact of depression. As somebody who has dealt with chronic depression for most of my adult life and into my, my teen years, even when I get into a good space, and I'm feeling better, and I'm kind of riding high, if you want to call it that, depression can still have an impact on you because you remember what that experience was was like. And sometimes even when you're happy and you're feeling good, your experience of life can be contaminated by the fear of when is it going to come back? Because that's something that is always hanging over my head as somebody who does deal with chronic depression, and I've had it for such a long time. I'll have these moments when I'm feeling good about life. And I think, when is the depression going to come back? When am I going to lose this feeling? And I know you need to focus on the silver lining. You're feeling good right now. And that's great and all. But if it, and I'm saying this more for the people that have somebody in their life who does deal with chronic depression, know that even when they are in a good space, the likelihood of them experiencing another episode of depression is relatively high. And that is kind of always hanging over their heads. They're not consciously aware of it all the time, but they do have this awareness in the back of their minds that it's going to come back. And that is something that haunts you and that you are always aware of. And that can make the depression worse when it does come back because that feeling of apathy and everything is pointless just is made so much. It's brought so much more to the, center stage when you've been doing well and you fall back into that depression and it's yep i knew this was going to happen and even if it gets better again why bother even trying to make it better when i know i'm just going to fall back into this again in the future that's a little bit of a downer thing and i was reluctant to share it but i think it's important to be aware of that if you have somebody in your life who has chronic depression that it is always impacting them on some level even when they're doing good and and for good reason too the statistics out there the more often you have a depressive episode the more likely you are to have another one if you have one it increases the chance you'll have a second if you have a second it greatly increases the chance you'll have a third depressive episode and so on and so forth the more often it happens the more likely it is to happen again and again and again and so that's a very much a reality that people are afraid of when we talked about those dsm Uh, symptoms. You know, they talked about sleeping being messed up and eating being messed up. And that goes, like I said, right into that dysregulation. It's not only do you not consciously have the wherewithal to deal with life, it's like your basic heart rate and temperature and digestion 
also no longer have the wherewithal to deal with life because it all gets jacked up. You know, you normally have a, a fine sleep cycle. It works for you. And all of a sudden you're sleeping all the time. You're constantly exhausted. Or maybe you're never sleeping and you can't get to sleep and you're suffering insomnia. And it's the same way with eating. Normally you have just your average diet. You're doing whatever. And then all of a sudden you feel constantly hungry or you're never hungry. It's like your whole system just gets jacked up. So even your autopilots, even those things that you're supposed to trust to be able to just do their shit and you don't have to think about, those get messed up as well. And that's a big piece because part of what regulates your sleep and your eating are the same neurochemicals that are regulating your ability to not be depressed. And so when those go into deficits and when they get dysregulated, the associated systems get dysregulated too. So when I get depressed, I want to sleep all the time. I can sleep days straight if I would let myself. And the same way with eating. Typically, I want to eat the world, fill that void. I'm trying to get any little bit of happy chemical I can that might get released by the food. So I keep shoving food down my face. And my diet tends to get shittier and I'm not adhering to the things I should be doing, such as not eating sugar or not eating dairy or not eating meat that I know help me. And that makes it worse again. You know, it's it's flipped for me from what it used to be. So when when I was growing up, because food was one of the few things I had any control over in our household, I would hoard food. And when I would get depressed, I would eat for comfort. And I always thought it was so weird with mom because mom was miserable all the time, but she never ate anything. And I was like, but how? How do you comfort yourself without food? And then the older that I've gotten, for some reason, I don't even know what caused it, I've flipped and I'm more like mom now that when I'm depressed, I have zero desire to eat. I don't want to. It's too much work. I don't want to cook. I don't want to eat anything that's healthy for me. I don't want to eat at all. I'm too tired to chew. I just want to say, fuck it. But then that makes it worse because then I go into starvation mode and that affects my mental health and it makes everything worse. But yeah, it's... I don't know what caused that shift to happen, but it definitely has. And now when I get depressed, I have to force myself to eat. It is one of those things that goes with being functionally depressed, where there are certain things you force yourself to do every day because you know you have to for basic function. And eating has become one of those things for me. Disordered eating becomes a very common thing with depression because on top of the either having a ravenous appetite or not having one at all, your perception of yourself becomes damaged and you're feeling more insecure than usual. And so you start seeing disordered eating in general with people who experience depression. And that's a very common thing to see in teenagers who are dealing with depression. So as a parent, if you are looking for red flags in your children, when it comes to possible depression, that is one of many things to look at is pay attention to their eating habits because depression and eating disorders often go hand in hand. And I think that could also apply to children because I talked about earlier, you know, the, the societal perception, the same exact symptom may be allowable in adults, but it looks like pushback from little kids. And I know mom used to say like food tasted like ash, like she didn't want to eat emotionally, she didn't have the energy for it. 
And the actual physical sensation of it was horrifying to her. It tasted like eating ash. And as an adult, you can kind of respect that and be like, okay, and maybe push through. But think about a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, or even a 12-year-old that all of a sudden is just a super picky eater and everything tastes gross to them. They're going to have a lot harder time pushing through and forcing themselves to eat, especially to eat anything healthy. So that could be another thing that you see is if you do have a younger kid and all of a sudden they're not wanting to eat anything or they're only wanting junk food when typically it just has not been an issue, that change in behavior could be very indicative of something. It may not be pushback. It may not be manipulation. It could be part of depression and they're not hungry and the very thought of food is nauseating or the reward of it has to be so high i.e. Twinkies, potato chip. And I think the other part that gets physically affected is libido. And that I don't think that was talked about in the DSM, but I think that's very much a reality for many of us. You get the pleasure from sex because it does release positive hormones. And when you are depressed, part of you is really trying to get any sort of positive feel good because you don't have any of it and you're such a deficit. But the other part of that is sex takes effort and energy. And I think that's part of why you see more of a drop in libido for females overall is because I think it takes more effort for me, females, especially like speaking personally for me getting older as I'm you know, 40, it's not as easy for me to get worked up um, because of our society and the culture we have and stuff. I have got more hangups with sex. And so there's a lot more effort that I have to put into having rewarding sex. And so it's just easier not to. But if it's something that is fairly easy, then you might have that increase in libido. But as Ivy and I were talking about this and creating our notes, one of the things we did know is that a lot of times, even if your libido is increased, it's not geared towards your partner. So when you do have depression and you do have a higher sex drive, it's often not for your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or whoever it is. It's a lot of times comes out as cheating, um, possibly increase in pornographic viewing. Masturbation is a big one. And I'll admit to that, and I'm probably TMIing, but when I get depressed, I don't have a high sex drive, but I masturbate more often because it's an easy way to get feel-good hormones. It's a quick fix. You don't have to interact with anybody. You don't have to put in effort. Yeah, because I, I think like Anna was saying, it's one of those things that like for some people completely drops off the map because they just have zero energy and their hormones are all shifted and their neurochemistry is all shifted. And so sex just ceases to be important and turns into a chore, or it becomes something that people do to self-medicate. And I think, and not to say, of course, that everybody who's depressed cheats, because that's ridiculous, that's not true. But for the people who do, I think, in addition to the what Autumn was saying about just wanting that quick fix without the baggage of the partnership that you're in, I think it's also because it's very difficult when you are depressed to be intimate with anybody. And I'm not just talking about sexually intimate. I'm talking about intimate in general, feeling an intimate connection with another person. And so if you do have an increased sex drive when you're depressed and you're doing it to self-medicate, you may be drawn to have sex with another person who's not your partner because not only are you looking for that self-medication, but you're looking for something that doesn't require a great degree of intimacy from you. And especially if you're trying to mask your depression, there's going to be this part of you that recognizes that my partner will be able, if I'm used to having a healthy, intimate relationship with my partner, if they can't sense that intimacy, 
Are they going to think that I don't love them anymore? Is that going to open a whole nother can of worms? And the idea of that is really exhausting too. So again, not everybody that gets depressed and has an increased sex drive is somebody who's going to cheat, but be aware that there are a complicated number of factors there. Cheating is in a very inflammatory topic and I completely understand why. There's good grounds for that, but cheating is very seldom as simple as we would like to believe it is. It's usually much more complicated than it seems at first glance. And that's especially true when you have mental health issues that are part of the infidelity. It doesn't excuse it, but it is something to be aware of that can complicate things further in your relationship and complicate things further for you with your mental health and cause issues in general for everybody involved. So we're going to move away from the sex talk here, which is good because I'm always uncomfortable talking about sex anyway. But what we are going to talk about is one other, the, one other symptom that tends to go along with depression when in your body and that is increased pain for whatever reason being depressed makes everything fucking hurt everything hurts when you're depressed you have more muscle tension you have more joint pain maybe some of it's that you are laying around more often not doing as much not being as physically active i don't know i'm sure there's lots of things that go into it but pain is a definite thing uh, with the physicalities of depression and i will let autumn talk to that a little bit more because i am very disconnected from my body almost all the time i wish i was more disconnected from my body some of the time uh no if i remember right i think it has something to do with norepinephrine the neurochemicals that help mask pain and provide some of the feel good that allow you just to get through day-to-day stuff they drop off and so the normal pain that we do regularly actually experience and feel isn't being masked like it should and so it comes out and I think the the best kind of analogy I can give to people that haven't been depressed if you've ever had the flu you know not just the nausea but that everything just aches and hurts the muscles hurt your eyeballs hurt your joints hurt it's almost like that for me you just feel and it's all kind it's not horrible aching intensity it's just this general aching ickiness anything that you typically hurt with is going to hurt more and if you don't typically hurt areas just are going to hurt and it super sucks so we talked a little bit about that don't really want to be intimate with a partner and i think part of that comes in You don't really want to be involved with anybody. You see a lot more social isolation. A lot of us aren't going to want to interact with other people. And part of that is just the effort it takes. And a lot of times we feel broken and leprous and disgusting. Even if you're the most attractive person in the world, you start feeling repulsive, nasty. And you feel like for me specifically, I know I feel like I'm going to contaminate, like leprous is a great word because I feel so disgusting, so broken. But if I even get near others, my nasty diseased self is going to rub off on them some way. And that like flares up my guilt that I shouldn't even be bothering other humans with my existence. And a lot of that is my perception of myself and that extreme negative focus. But some of it too is just it takes effort to interact with others. It takes effort to put yourself together so you don't smell like you haven't bathed in three weeks because you haven't bathed in three weeks so that you can go out and be around others without being judged. It it takes a lot of effort to interact, even for extroverts, because if they're trying to mask and they're trying to get that feel good, 
they're having to put on that act. On the note of, of the social isolation, I tend to be really introverted anyway. And when I get depressed, that is even more the case. I am naturally socially isolated because I prefer to be that way. But when I get depressed, that social isolation becomes addictive. Being alone becomes very addictive for me when I am feeling depressed. And it's like pulling teeth to get me to interact with even the people that I love most. I tend to drop off the map and it can be hard to get in contact with me. Or if you do get in contact with me, maybe I'll respond two or three days later and it'll just be a couple of texts and then I don't have energy for anything more beyond that. So that's one thing to be watchful of too. Um, as somebody on the outside, if you have somebody that is normally introverted, don't just assume that they're okay. Pay attention to how much more introverted they are. And as far as the extroverted thing goes, another thing to look for is that, yeah, because some extroverts will actually increase their social exposure um, because they are looking to self-medicate. But one important thing to note, my partner tends to be more extroverted and I have noticed a definite pattern with him. And he's also said this too, that when he is feeling depressed, yeah, he may want to go out and spend more time around people but not with the people he actually has meaningful relationships with. They tend to be very superficial social interactions that require very little from him in terms of real interaction. It's he goes and plays video games with some people he kind of knows from work, or he goes and helps somebody with a home renovation project or something like that, but he tends to become avoidant and isolated from the people that he would normally value and be very close to. So with extroverts, even if they are seeking out more social interaction, be aware that they might be, and don't take it personally either, if that you feel like this person that you're normally very close to, they're going out and they're doing things with other people, but they're not spending any time with you. It may not be because you did anything wrong or that they don't like you. It could be because they don't have the capacity to spend time with people that they have meaningful interactions with. They're looking for self-medication. They're looking for a social high. They don't have it in them to have an intimate, meaningful relationship of any kind with other people. So that's another thing to be aware of with that social isolation as well. And then when will you start talking about depression? Another thing that becomes very common when it comes to relational things is patterns of enmeshment and codependency. And Autumn and I both have our have quite a bit of experience with that, uh, but I think Autumn probably more so when it comes to depression itself, because she was definitely the one that, that uh, was there for mom the most. So I'm going to let her talk to that. I wasn't sure where you were going with that at first, and I'm like, I don't think I've been that bad in my relationships, but no, um, yeah, with mom. Oh, my, our, our mom went through significant, like we said, debilitating depression. And when we say debilitating depression, she she went to bed for one, two years. That that literally is what she did. She laid in bed and drank. I don't even know what she ate. I must have gotten her to eat stuff, but total debilitating depression. Part of her way of dealing with that was completely enmeshing me. And there was a lot of other stuff going on in the household. There was a lot of trauma and other stuff. 
but you do see this even in more normative or healthier balanced environments that that sense of enmeshment and codependency and i feel that this is two pieces one you're having a really hard time functioning you're having a hard time doing anything you just want to not and so if you have another person there who is willing and able to do this shit you don't have to and so you can push it off onto them and that's not just daily tasks i mean that goes into even emotionally dealing with stuff you can push off your emotional shit onto other people you can manipulate others into feeling your emotions for you and that's actually the extent to what our mom did ensured that when she had an emotional reaction i also had that emotional reaction and i learned to do that and i've done that with people in my life before i'm not exactly sure how it works but when that other person shares that emotion it's not as weighing on you it's not as extreme and it's not as heavy and so that enmeshment and that codependency allows you to even push off emotional processing not just the physical tasks of stuff and i think again the other piece of it is you know we keep coming back to self-medicating but you are in a definite deficit of feel good you know whether that's mental whether that's emotional whether that's even physical you feel like shit and so you're trying to do something to not feel like shit to escape the ash and gray and everything that you are in and codependency really allows you to do that to some degree because you are getting that validation and because you're looping with them they're helping to pull you up out of that and I think, again, this goes back into the perception of self as well, because another piece of this, especially in intimate sexualized type relationships, is jealousy. And a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times jealousy can come from personal feelings of inferiority. And so you assume the other person is going to cheat. And so you want to pull them closer and you want to put your claws into them and you want to be jealous of their time and actions. And part of that is negative focus again. You know they're going to leave you because why would they stay with you? And part of it also is if they do, if there is, if they actually see you and you give them enough space to, to leave, that is a huge rejection that your ego just does not have the capacity to deal with when you're depressed. So I think enmeshment and codependency are a big thing. I know I've done that when I've gotten depressed. I've had it done to me. It sucks. <laughs> I hate it, but I, I get why it is. And I've done my best as I've grown to not do that to other people because it is so damaging. Because essentially what you're doing when you force somebody to enmesh with you is you're you're dragging them down into that pit. You're not letting them help you up out of it. You're grabbing their hand and purposely yanking them down into the muck and the mire and the feces and the decay that you're in. Um, on the other end of that, again, depression is a lot about dysregulation and dysregulation means extreme. So maybe you're super enmeshed with somebody or maybe you're on the opposite end and you're like Ivy and you're like, fuck all y'all, I'll do it myself. <laughs> that is the story of my life. Fuck all y'all, I'll do it myself. Um, <laughs> the uh, the hyper-independence for me, I think naturally I am more just a loner. Um, whether I would have been that way if my childhood had been different, I don't know, because I think some things happened in early infancy and things like that that kind of biochemically set me up to want to spend more time on my own. But when I am depressed, I become even more obsessed with my independence and my function. And a big part of that for me is very conscious 
because I have spent my entire life pretty much being terrified of becoming my mother. And again, I love my mom. She was in so many ways an amazing person, but she was also a deeply wounded person with a lot of issues that went completely untreated for far too long. And I was so afraid of becoming my mom. I've always had more of an independent streak, but when I was married to my second husband, I was where I was living and circumstances around the time I was not working and he was completely financially supporting me. And I, that's the closest I ever got to being like my mom because I would sleep until two, three in the afternoon. I would barely get myself out of bed and do the just basic of functions. A lot of times I wouldn't even clean the house. Like I feel so bad for my second husband. He was with me through probably the, the worst of what I am capable of descending into. And it was through that experience of being with him and seeing what I was turning into and being so acutely aware of the ways in which I was becoming like mom when I got out of that relationship and I really started focusing in on my mental health. One of the things I realized is I cannot be unemployed because when I fall into depression, when that chronic depression comes back, if I have the option of not doing things, I will not do things. And if I have the option of being dependent, I will do it. And I don't want to be that. I've been so terrified of becoming my mom that I've gone the opposite direction for the bulk of my life. And when I get depressed, I am very much about, no, I, I need to focus more on functioning. I still need to get to work. I still need to make sure the, the apartment gets clean. I still need to take care of these things. And I can go too far in that other direction of just being too independent, not allowing for help, not asking for help, not letting anybody get close to me. I, one of the things that I am most proud of in these last couple of years is that when I found myself starting to sink into that depression in 2020, I immediately got myself into counseling. I couldn't really afford it, but I absolutely could not afford to not see a therapist because I could see the direction I was going. It was not good. And so that was a huge step for me as far as progress is even being able to ask a professional for help. But even then I struggled a lot for about a year before I even told the people who were closest to me that I was having a hard time because I don't tell the people I love that I'm having a hard time usually. Or if I do, it's, yeah, I'm kind of struggling right now, but don't worry about it. I'll be fine. I got this. It's, it's fine. You don't need to, you don't need to burden yourself with me because that's what I'm always afraid of is becoming a burden. So for some people with depression, it may not always come from the same space, but being hyper independent is something that they gravitate towards. And I think that's probably even more common in people who have chronic depression because they've lived with it for a long time and it's a burden to them and they don't want to be a burden to other people. And so they're more likely to not only socially isolate themselves, but, but to take on more than they can handle and be like, no, it's okay. I'm fine. And I'm not sure if it's just our raising, but I, I think I've heard other people speak to this too, is with depression, you really just want to not. And if the option is there, that path of least resistance is there you're oftentimes going to take that. And that is where the enmeshment comes in. And that hyper independence is like a pull against that either way. 
and and I think both of those the the enmeshment and the hyperindependence are drastic attempts to try to get your shit together but again because you're so dysregulated you have so much going on you have so few resources you're not able to healthily do it and i think also this is part of where you see some of that that gender split in our society too for independence i think you see a lot more in masculine in that male that male stereotype because you're not allowed to ask for help you're supposed to do it yourself you're supposed to have the balls to be a man and all of that bullshit and so you're going to see a lot more hyper independence because they're trying very hard to be what they're supposed to be females stereotypically again very relationally based very you know supporting of one another and you're allowed to seek that out and again it gets dysregulated it gets imbalanced and it gets extreme yeah and i want to make a couple other notes one to to reiterate here autumn and i are not saying that any emotions are female or male or that any expression of things is absolutely female or male but there are enough patterns there the way that our society is has kind of separated a lot of things into masculine versus feminine qualities and so whether you like it or not those are still things that we have to look at and consider because society and cultural influences do impact our self-perception they do impact our mental health so i wanted to reiterate that autumn and i are not saying this is man this is man and this is woman that's not what we're saying i'm going to interrupt you really quick and just put a call to action out there any individuals out there that are transgender or that are non-binary how you feel you're allowed to express it how your expression of your gender or your expression of your sex in society affects that because i would be very interested to know because i don't think there's a lot of research out there and so i would love to hear your perceptions both on how you feel you personally express mm-hmm. depression, how you're allowed to express it, and the kind of pushback you get from society regarding your expression. I would love to hear some of that feedback too, because like Autumn said, I don't think that there's there's not nearly enough research either because it's too new or because we've only recently started looking at transgender as being something that's not a mental health issue in and of itself as far as being something broken and wrong. So I would be interested to get some of that feedback too. I did want to mention one other thing that when we're talking about those societal stereotypes of masculine versus feminine things, and I've mentioned his books several times before, which I'm, I'll admit I'm kind of a fan girl for Terrence Real, but he in his book, um, in a couple of his books actually, but in his book, I don't want to talk about it overcoming the the secret legacy of male depression. One of the things that he talks about in there is the different ways in which depression manifests between the stereotypical masculine versus feminine. And what he talks about is that with depression, regardless of gender, there is shame in there. But with the masculine, they tend to go what he refers to as one up into grandiosity. And women tend to go one down into that, you know, sadness and enmeshment and all of those sorts of things. And so that's part of where we see the beginning of that divide is that there is a lot of shame that comes in general with mental health, but especially with depression. And because that shame is there, you have to react to it somehow. And that energy is going to manifest somehow. And because of the pressures that are on the different genders in our society, men tend to go one up into grandiosity because it allows them to function at that level where they're pushing harder towards those societal expectations to prove their worth through their their career success or whatever. 
to feel better about themselves, they tend to go one up into grandiosity, whereas women tend to go one down because women are generally more relational. And there is more of that awareness of how their behavior impacts other people. And so I'll, it tends to go kind of one down into guilt and one down into sadness and those kinds of feelings. So it's just another thing to be aware of and to note. Again, being a man or a woman does not necessarily mean you are going to fit into that stereotype based on your gender. Like Autumn was saying, hyper-independence is generally something you see more often in men, but I am not a man. I very much identify as being a woman and I'm, I like being a woman, but I tend to go into hyper-independence for my own reasons. So there, there is obviously room to move around within those stereotypes, but we do see enough patterns that there are some generalizations that we can make. And there are some things that we have to look at again, because we have been raised in a certain society with certain standards and certain ideas. And whether we like it or not, those things are imprinted on us. And we still have to deal with it from other people in society as a whole. So we still have to look at those things. I think that's accurate. And I think part of this also just goes into the the entire stigma of mental health out there. And that's part of why I, I really want that call to action out there. One of the things I'm seeing with, I, I think they call them our Gen Zs, um, is what it is, is I'm seeing a lot more of the non-binary. I'm seeing a lot more of the transgender. And I'm also seeing a lot more of that breaking of the stigma of not being ashamed of whatever your mental health struggle is. And I... I am hoping to God that as these adolescents move into adulthood, adulthood and society as it has been does not weigh them down and beat them down like it has so many of us before, that they're able to hold on to these ideals and push them forward and raise their children in that so that we start seeing this world where whatever your depression is, whatever your mental health is, you have freedom to express it as you need without pushback and that there isn't shame. And one of the, the last things I want to touch on today is substance use and self-medication because this is something you see a lot with depression. And we've talked throughout the episode again about self-medicating because again, you hurt. You hurt emotionally, you hurt physically, you hurt mentally. Stuff just isn't working. And you are in a definite deficit of norepinephrine and serotonin and the neurochemicals your body needs. Your body is actively fighting to try to restore a balance because it is so imbalanced. Your body's trying to raise the temperature at the same time it's trying to shut you down because it's just done. That's kind of where you're at with depression. But that attempt to raise your temperature, that attempt to get back that balance is often self-medicating. You're reaching out for anything. You know, we talked about cheating with others. We talked about increased interactions with others. We talked about food, you know, sex, drugs, alcoholism, work, workaholism, gambling, social media, Netflix, video games, anything you can think of that gives you that burst. And so the self-medication is just an attempt to cope, an attempt to return your system to balance so that you can keep moving forward. And obviously, of course, that doesn't mean that that's a good thing. We ideally do not want to be addicted to anything as a form of self-medication, but it is definitely something to, to be aware of, especially for, I mean, it's important to be aware as a depressed person to pay attention to what you are feeling compelled to do and if it's starting to get out of hand you definitely want to be aware of those things 
but it's really important for people on the outside who have a loved one who is dealing with mental health stuff, be aware of patterns in their behavior, activities that they've either stopped doing completely or are now doing too much of. These extreme kinds of behaviors look for that, that form of self-medicating. And it may not always be obvious. To some degree, eating disorders can be a, a form of addiction in a sense. You are so obsessed with controlling food, controlling your weight. That can be a form of addiction. It doesn't always look like addiction because a lot of times when we think of addiction, we think of, you know, the, the basics. We think of substance abuse. We think of gambling. These are the types of things that we hear about on a regular basis, but you can get addicted to anything. You can get addicted to religion. You can take anything to an extreme. So if you have somebody in your life who is struggling with depression or mental health things, or you think that they might be, it's another thing to be aware of and watch what sorts of things are they spending their time on? What things are they fixating on? Because even some things that don't necessarily look like addiction can be. I know when my partner gets starts to get depressed, he needs to be doing something constantly. He always needs a project to be working on because for him, it's distraction. He needs that distraction from how he's feeling. With me, I tend to, to go into escapism. I read a lot more books. I watch a lot more movies. I get fixated on stories and I will try to make the rest of the world go away. There are tons of things that you can get addicted to. A common one for teenagers is social media or video games. If you have a child or you know a teenager in your life who might be dealing with depression, how much time are they spending playing video games? Because maybe they don't even recognize that they're depressed, but if they're spending all of their time playing video games, not even sleeping at night, there you go, there might be another sign of depression right there. Only eating junk food, that could be another sign of depression. All of these things kind of factor in together. And like that final symptom in the DSM, the ultimate form of escapism, which is suicide. You see it's hand in hand with depression, suicidal ideation, suicidal thoughts, suicidal plans, suicide attempts. It's escapism because depression is very much all consuming and it makes your life bleak and gray and dark. And because you cannot think and you cannot access these happy memories, it feels like this is always going to be your reality, that there is no hope. And so even if you know it's going to get better, it doesn't feel like it. And so you do look to escape. And sometimes that escapism is the suicidal ideation and the suicidal thoughts. And it's listening and being aware for those out there that are trying to help people. It's just listening and being aware. You know, are they having those change in behavior? If you see something that shows that addiction, whether it's sex or drugs or work or gambling, that is so intense it's starting to destroy the person's life or you see somebody starting to actively talk about ending their life that's a good indication they need help and a lot of us aren't set up to help individuals in our life we may be able to support them to some degree but it's always a good idea to see if you can pull in somebody that has more expertise than you you know, even if it's just calling a suicide hotline or crisis hotline or helping the person get community resources. Yeah, I think it is very important to be aware of, always aware of that possibility with depression because it's like Autumn was saying, when you're in that depression, it feels like it's going to last forever. 
but going back to what I was talking about earlier, how even when you are doing good, that depression always hangs over your head. And when you fall back into that depression, there is that part of you that feels even more hopeless because it's like, yeah, I know it'll get better, but guess what? It's going to turn to shit again. Why bother even trying to get better? Why not just end it now? Those sorts of things go through your head all the time. And if you have never struggled with suicidal ideation and you have really good self-preservation, that can be really hard to wrap your head around as to why anybody would want to do that, would be compelled to do that, would find that find death alluring. But a lot of it really is you are just so miserable and you're so tired and everything feels so pointless and it doesn't feel like it's ever going to get any better. Or even if it does, it's just going to get worse again. It's just going to be a life of doing the same shit over and over and over again. And that's, that's so exhausting to think about that. It just makes you even exhausted with life. And I'm not saying that to scare anybody. I'm just, I'm trying to help those of you who don't who don't live with suicidal ideation understand where that desire comes from. That's something that comes hand in hand with depression, it comes hand in hand with a lot of mental health stuff, but it's something that is there and we don't always have control over it. And unfortunately, some people with that suicidal ideation, they end up acting on impulse. And that is a scary thing to consider, which is so important. That's why it's so important at for as somebody on the outside who loves someone who is struggling with mental health stuff, be aware. Don't brush it off as, oh, they're just being a typical teenager or, oh, they just, you know, they're, they're just having a, a little period of time where they're really sad or it's, it, they'll be fine. It'll get better. Or, oh, I, I doubt they're depressed. See, they're totally functional. Don't brush things off. Pay attention because what starts off is just, oh, they're just having a little sad spell can turn into something's so much more tragic and we don't want that to happen. So be conscious of it. And we are going to, in the near future, be doing some episodes on how to support somebody in your life who is having mental health problems. And this is actually a great time to put, a, put out a call to action here. We would love to hear from you guys. If you do have somebody in your life who's struggling with mental health stuff and you don't know what to do, let us know, like, what things do you need help with so that you can help the people that you love? If you have somebody in your life who has had chronic mental health issues and it was something that you kind of struggled with initially and you've learned some things, what important things have you learned? What do you wish somebody had told you sooner? Just a couple notes on what you said, Ivy. One, the suicidal ideation. If you hear somebody expressing suicidal ideation, hear it for what it is. It's an, an expression of extreme pain and extreme struggle. And so listen to it as that. A another note on that with suicide is that if you have somebody in your life and you know they're depressed and they've been struggling with depression and all of a sudden, instantaneously, next day, they're happy and bright and bubbly, be concerned. Be very, very concerned. That is a definite red flag. Been chronically depressed for a long time, and they finally decided to kill themselves. The weight of the load being lifted off of them makes them so happy and so giddy, and that's why they're acting that way. And they're trying to give you a happy last memory. So be very, very concerned if you know somebody that's struggling with depression, and instantaneously they seem to be happy and better. You don't have to like lock them down, but just keep an eye on them and be 
be very much there for them. Uh, the last thing I wanted to note, and I think Ivy talked to this, but I, I want to underline and emphasize that, is the idea of exhaustion with depression. I feel like that's one of the best analogies out there for depression if you're trying to understand it, is if you've ever been up for hours and hours and you're just totally exhausted and you sit down on the couch and you just feel yourself sinking into sleep that few seconds before you drop into sleep and how good it feels to just be done that that i think is an excellent analogy for depression yeah and on that note of just wanting to be done the way that i've always explained it to people when i've been suicidal is it's not necessarily that i'm longing for death it is that i am just so exhausted i just don't want to exist for a while because just existing is exhausting. I just get so tired just from thinking about all of the things that go into existing. Consciousness, my heartbeat, all of the processes that my body is going through, all the chemical processes going on inside my brain. All of that is so exhausting that it's not even that I want to die, it's that I want to not exist at all for a while. I just want it all to stop. But a lot of people, when they get into that space, they go to suicide. And not everybody that is depressed will be suicidal. Uh, not everybody that's depressed will be incapacitated. Mention those definite extremes because you do need to be aware of those. And if you feel like you've related to any of this in our episode or you know somebody in your life that you feel might be depressed, it's very possible. But don't take this as a diagnosis tool. These symptoms can be present in a lot of different disorders. And like I said, depressed mood and depression itself are very common in life. And there is a lot of us struggling with functional depression. And like Ivy said, we are going to be doing that episode on how to support learning mental health struggles. And we definitely, definitely want to hear from you questions you have that we can answer that will help you support those that are struggling in your life. Ivy, can you tell all of our listening audience how they can give us this information, how they can reach out to us? If you want to get in touch with us for any reason, but especially to give us your input towards those episodes on how to help a loved one with mental health issues, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Different Functional. You can find us on Twitter as Diff Functional. You can find us at our website, www.differentfunctional.com, and there is a contact form there. Or you can email us at differentfunctional at gmail.com. And if you are so desirous to support us in a more monetary way, we are also on Patreon as Different Functional. Definitely check out our Patreon page. We do have some bonus content out there and we're looking at different things we can release and extras and additives we can have. And we thank you very much for listening today. And we hope you join us next time as we talk about coping with depression. And as always, remember, different does not mean defective. My